Welcome back to Over My Dead Pod, a true crime comedy podcast brought to you weekly by me, Kylie Colwell. It is I, Kate Carter. And me, Molly Spear. Hello, ladies. Today, I'm going to tell you all the story of Nicole Vander Hayden, who went by Nikki, a mother of three who was brutally murdered just outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin. I do not know this one. And that is very exciting. So on the morning of May 21st, 2016, a farmer in Bellevue, Wisconsin, called police to tell them that he found a blonde woman face down in a wooded area on his farm. Police arrived shortly after to find the woman unclothed, wearing just a pink club wristband, socks, and she had a shoe mark on her back. It wasn't until investigators turned her body over did they see the extent of her injuries, which made her unrecognizable. The Brown County Sheriff Sergeant Richard Locknow said, and quote, the extent of injuries that she suffered was pretty horrific. There was trauma to her neck that would indicate possible strangulation, in addition to lacerations and bruising throughout her body. Her fingernails were damaged, indicative of defensive wounds that tells us she was fighting for her life. So pretty gnarly, but that same day, while police were still on the farm investigating the scene, they received a call at 4.30 p.m. from a man named Douglas Dietrich, who goes by Doug. During his 911 call, Doug said, quote, how do I go about, I guess, a missing person? But this is a small town outside of Green Bay, so there wouldn't really be that many missing persons and murdered persons on the same day. Well, I'm just curious, if you had to report a missing person, what would you say? Okay, so if somebody goes missing... Because I've thought about this a lot because we do a lot of missing persons cases. Personally, though I do know what I know now, I think I would still wait a whole night because let's say, for example, Cameron pieces out, you know, I've got his location. I know this is different times, but I think I would still probably wait for an overnight to happen that he never came home to go to sleep. You know, Mm -hmm. like he could leave at 8 a.m. in the morning and come home at night and everything would be fine, you know, and I wouldn't think anything differently. I mean, we update each other all the time. I don't know. I just think it would be very hard for somebody to like go for a run and never return and same day say that they're missing. I just feel like that would be hard. It's so different now because we have technology like, you know, Scott wasn't supposed to be gone and I couldn't find his location. He wasn't answering his phone. I'd probably exhaust every person that I could and his family or circle before I called the police. So police made their way over to Doug's home in nearby Ledgeview when they noticed he seemed to be very, very hungover. Doug explained to the police that him and his girlfriend Nikki had gone out the night before with friends and that she never came home. I'm not sure exactly what information Doug gave at this like initial point when police came over. So the timeline I'm going to give you is just a mix of everything I found from Doug, police reports, and testimony at trial. So on May 20th, Doug and Nikki left their six-month-old son at home with the babysitter so they could meet up with friends for some drinks and a concert at a bar called The Watering Hole, just on the other side of town. Doug drove himself and Nikki in his car. So Nikki did have two other children from a previous marriage, um, and those two children were at their father's that weekend. Apparently that night, drinks were pouring, Marijuana cigarettes were being used. Uh, Nikki and Doug got into an argument during this after Nikki saw Doug talking to another woman. 
So at 11.15 p.m., Nikki and a few friends from the group left the watering hole for another bar called the Sardine Can. Doug and his friend Greg Matthews stayed at the watering hole. And while Nikki was out at the other bar, she was visibly upset and began texting Doug, accusing him of cheating and being abusive. She sent him one text saying, F*** you, abusive asshole, to which he responded, LOL. Really stand no guy. No denying, just LOL. At 11.40 p.m., Nikki decided to leave the sardine can, much to the disapproval of her friends, including a friend named Aaron Glinsky, who attempted to convince Nikki to either stay or get a taxi home. It wasn't until Nikki and Aaron got into an argument, and he told police it got physical. I'm not sure what exactly that means, if it was like pushing, shoving, actual hits. But Nikki ended up walking out of the bar alone. Surveillance footage inside the bar backed all this up and shows Aaron returning inside the bar at 11.43 p.m. and him and the rest of the group leaving in Ubers a few minutes later. Surveillance also shows Doug and Greg entering the sardine can at 12.30 a.m. and staying until 2.15 a.m. Doug told police that Greg dropped him off at home, where he assumed Nikki would be since she wasn't at the bar when he arrived. I guess he just thought she left with the other friends. She got a ride home. I think what I need to put in my head, too, is that the watering hole and the sardine can aren't walking distance from each other. I would say probably Uber, at least driving-wise. So it's not like you're going to walk back and forth. But they also lived in this town. So I guess what I was thinking first is I was like, hell no, you don't just leave your friend or you don't leave your partner at a random bar after midnight, you know? But then again, they live in this town. So, like, I'm trying to compare it to myself. Would I ever just leave Cameron at a bar in Jupiter? Sure, because he lives here. You know, like we're only a few minutes away from the house. Her friends probably thought that she got into an Uber or a taxi because they just saw her like walk down the street. But I feel like it's normal. Like you have a group of people at a bar. And you're like, OK, I'm leaving. You see them walk out. You assume like they're getting an Uber or something. Fun fact, you guys, in college, I was an Uber driver. You reveal something new. And we've been friends for how long? It, I'm a I'm a good Pandora's box, I will say. Every other sentence, Kate has some like life changing experience she tells us about that we never knew. Anyways, okay, so continue your story. Sorry, Kylie. Okay. So Doug left his car at the watering hole, so his friend Greg drove him to the sardine can. They ended up leaving. Greg dropped Doug off at his home, where he assumed Nikki would be since she wasn't at the bar. Doug later testified at trial that him and Greg drove around the neighborhood and tried calling Nikki, but her phone was off. When she wasn't at the house, he assumed she was staying at a friend's and would show up in the morning. Doug woke up at 6 a.m. to feed their baby. Then he went back to bed, not waking up again until 10.30 a.m. to see Nikki still wasn't home. Doug testified that when he woke up again, he checked jail records, called Nikki's family's members to see if they heard from her, and asked them to check hospital records. He originally was not going to call the police. He wasn't too concerned yet. It was Nikki's sister, actually, who egged him on to call the police. Made that call at 4.30 p.m. In this pretty quiet town with one missing blonde woman and a body of a blonde woman found, it didn't take long for police to have at least an idea of identification. However, because of the extent of injuries, the body had to be identified with dental records. And police confirmed that the body found on the farm was that of Nicole Vander Hayden. A further search turned up Nikki's bloody clothing, purse, cell phone, and shoes on a highway ramp about a mile away from where her body was found. Okay, so obviously someone had driven on the ramp. Yes, and thrown said belongings out of the window. What's interesting, though, it kind of forms like a triangle. Like we have the body in like the left, 
bottom house on the right and then clothes and such are like at the top so it's not in the direction back to the house and it's not anywhere near the bars no okay it's going the opposite direction of the bars an autopsy revealed that nikki had been strangled hit in the head and possibly sexually assaulted the official cause of death was ligature strangulation and blunt force trauma the medical examiner also found unknown male dna on nikki's body so of course police wanted to look into doug and what they did find is some pretty troubling information. Doug and Nikki met in January of 2015, so a little over a year before all this, and apparently had a pretty good relationship at first. But Nikki's family confirmed Nikki's text, and they told authorities that Doug was in fact abusive. Police also located a domestic violence claim from his ex-girlfriend, but there were no formal charges ever brought against Doug for this. So we really don't know if he's an abusive person. We have allegations. Okay. Police were able to obtain a text message that Doug had sent his mother 10 days before Nikki's death and said, I quote, I'm very seriously thinking about telling Nikki and the kids they have to move. When talking to investigators, the babysitter that night, Dallas Kennedy, said that when she asked Doug what happened to Nikki that night, he said, I don't know. She hit her head and she just wanted to walk home. Red flag. Because where did the hitting the head come from? Who knows? So pretty soon after this, police obtained a search warrant for Nikki and Doug's home, which turned up some pretty incriminating evidence. Blood was found on the garage floor, on a pair of shoes, and along with some dirt in Nikki's car. While police were collecting this evidence, some neighbors walked up with some items they found that night that might be of some concern. The neighbors told police they found blood on their curb in their yard, and an Android phone charger with clumps of blonde hair tangled in it. Doug, uh, pretty soon after, was arrested. Okay, not a good look. But there's some pretty big holes in the police's theory that Doug was involved. To start, Doug had left his car at the Watering Hole Bar. That's the first bar they went to that night. And Nikki had some sort of insurance device in her car, you know, that like tracks if you're a good driver and gives Mm -hmm. you discount and stuff. And it showed that her car hadn't been driven in over 24 hours. So police talked to Greg, the friend who was with Doug and dropped him off. And Greg corroborated Doug's story that he drove Doug home before heading home himself and not making any other stops. Location data from both of their phones backed this up. Greg also said that when he dropped Doug off, he entered the house and they chatted a bit, talking about how Nikki wasn't there before saying goodbye to the babysitter who had been there the entire night and hadn't seen or heard from Nikki either. Police noticed that Doug always wore a Fitbit, which was a Mm. Christmas gift from Nikki. And the data from the Fitbit showed that Doug had only walked 12 steps between 2.45 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. when he said he got up to feed the baby. So Greg dropped him off at 2.30. They chatted a little bit. The babysitter was still there. I guess said goodbye. The babysitter went off to bed. So it's assumed he was asleep by 2.45. So the Fitbit really just shows that he woke up and fed the baby. Hmm. Okay, maybe I take back my red flags. Taking him back already? No. Just like half up. It's a half flag. So at this point, the results from all the blood found at the home came in. And the blood in the garage and on the shoe found in the garage wasn't human. The blood in the dirt in Nikki's car came from one of her children. Apparently, Doug was an avid hunter and would often bring his kills home. So the blood on the the sidewalk, too, and everything was deer or whatever animal blood? That was human blood. 
but in their actual house and the garage and in the car was not. So despite these supposed setbacks and evidence, police did get a hit of DNA found on one of Nikki's socks. Okay, you know, I love a good plot twist and it Mm. wouldn't be my episode without one, Mm -hmm. but the DNA came back and it's not Doug's. Stop. It's not him? The DNA came back as a match to a man named George Stephen Birch, who I found out was 6'7". He had been originally charged with the murder of a man named Joey White, in 1997 in Virginia, but he was ultimately found not guilty of that death. So Joey White was the leader of the Hoods Mob Gang, great name, who according to testimony hated George and had beat him up on several occasions. Birch allegedly shot Joey after a heated phone call between the two and their friends. They had a phone call and then he drove to his house and shot him and then got off on the charges? Apparently, yeah, they're on the phone arguing whatever they meet up at this apartment complex apparently no one witnesses it and they never found any bullets or shell casings any no physical evidence tied to george so he got off so you might be wondering how george ended up in wisconsin in january of 2016 so it's a couple months before nicole's murder he moved to wisconsin to live with a friend ed jackson and his wife linda who he knew from new york So we're all over the map here. Ed and Linda allowed George to live in one of their spare bedrooms for only $100 a month. Ed allowed George to use his vehicle, a Chevy Blazer, to get to work, which Ed helped him get. The local police department actually had his DNA on file because George was a suspect in a hit and run, a stolen vehicle report, and a car being set on fire. And this was the Chevy Blazer that Ed had lent George. On June 8th, 2016, so this is after Nikki's murder, George had given consent to the police to go through his phone records to prove his innocence in this car case. So police did, and they, I guess, created basically a second phone of data. Like they took all the data off, created basically a second phone on their computers, and they collected back three weeks prior to that date, which just so happened to overlap the day Nikki was murdered. So once investigators on Nikki's case realized they had this data, they put together George's timeline and whereabouts on that night and early morning. So up until 2.30 a.m. on May 21st, George was at a bar called Richard Cranium's, which is not only close to the sardine can, but it's also in the direction that Nikki was last seen walking to. George's phone data also showed that he was outside of Nikki and Doug's house between 3 and 3.52 a.m., his phone tracked him outside of Nikki and Doug's house for almost an hour. There was really no reason for him to be there. He didn't know anyone that lived in that neighborhood. It's not like he has like an alibi, like, oh, I was out of friends. So he was there until 3.52 a.m. By 4 a.m., his phone pinged at the farm in Bellevue where Nikki's body was found. And by 4.05 a.m., he was driving onto that highway ramp to go back home. The same one where Nikki's clothes, purse, phone, all that was found. All right. So the case is done. This is it. They literally have a timeline. He's at their house standing there idly. He goes to the farm. He goes to that exact highway. It all makes sense. You're going to throw another little twist into it, aren't you? So once presented with this information, George refused to answer any more questions. And he was formally arrested on September 7th, 2016. So at this time, Ed and Linda had kicked George out, rightfully so. He was living with a man named Matthew Wassenberg who told police that George had recently bought a new pair of Air Jordans to replace an older pair. 
the herringbone pattern on the soles of these shoes matched the shoe print on Nikki's back. Though George's trial didn't begin until February of 2018, this is when he gave his story. According to George, he did in fact meet Nikki at Richard Cranium's that night, and they began flirting. George offered to drive her home, but before getting out of the car, the two started to have consensual sex. It was at this point, this is George's explanation, while they were having sex, George was hit in the head with a gun, which knocked him out. George woke up on the ground outside the car to see that Nikki was already dead, lying there as well, and someone was holding him at gunpoint. That someone, according to George, was Doug. No. Wait a minute. Hold on. There's a lot of twists in this. Okay. 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 Um, George said that Doug forced him to drive him and Nikki's body to the farm at gunpoint, where Doug disposed of the body. I'm not exactly sure how Doug got home, though, because George's phone never pings back at the house. And again, Doug wasn't walking. I'm not believing this story, George. Okay, so do you guys remember Ed Jackson? He's the man that George stayed with. At trial, George testified that on the night of May 20th, George did go out, and the next day, around 1.30 or 2, when George woke up, the two drove to, I think it's pronounced Racine, this town in Wisconsin, to go fishing, where apparently George slept the entire time. He did catch one fish. Congrats, George. Good job, George. Ed also testified that him and George had been watching the news coverage of Nikki's murder. At one point, Ed said, the scumbag that did it ought to be taken down, and George didn't respond at all. Ed also said that George was intensely watching the TV whenever Nikki was brought up in the news. Ed and George's girlfriend testified that they saw no injuries on George after the murder, but there was also no injuries on Doug. What do you guys think the jury decided? I'm leaning more towards George. Our large man George did all of this. I am now thinking that the boyfriend Doug is not involved in any of this. I don't like George right now. So weird that you would bring this guy home knowing that you had a baby upstairs and have consensual sex like in the car outside your house. His story just it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. And the jury agreed with that and they found George guilty of first degree intentional homicide and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The prosecutor's theory as to what happened that night was that Nikki did meet George at Richard Cranium's. George offered to drive her home. I guess with the expectation of them having sex. When she rejected him, George raped her, beat her, and strangled her with his own charging cord. At some point, Nikki broke away and began to run to her house, but George caught up to her and beat her in her own driveway. He then dropped her body off of the farm, throwing her belongings out of the car on his way home, all while Doug and their young son slept soundly in the house right there. They think she got beat in the driveway and nobody woke up. Wouldn't you think that it would be so loud or some type of noise coming from her? I can understand Doug not hearing it because apparently he was intoxicated. The neighbors, I don't know how they wouldn't hear it, but if she was strangled, perhaps being strangled the entire time, she couldn't Mm -hmm. scream. On June 29th, 2021, so not too long ago, George attempted to appeal his conviction. He argued that his cell phone data shouldn't have been admissible in the trial because it was gathered for a separate investigation, that whole car debacle. That was rejected. He will remain in prison for the rest of his life. My lawyer girls, can you use traceable evidence from another case to pursue your current case? Yeah, he had given police consent. Yeah, Yeah, if you give consent, that's it. So now it's a little tea time. 
isn't exactly relevant, but I found it interesting. In 2017, so a year after the murder and a year before the trial, Doug Dietrich pled no contest to second degree recklessly endangering safety, false imprisonment, both felonies, and a misdemeanor negligent operation of a vehicle. Apparently, after Nikki's death, her sister began to help Doug out with the baby. The two went to a birthday party together, and on the way home, Doug allegedly touched the sister's leg in a sexual manner. When the sister said, please don't, making Doug angry, he started speeding at extreme levels and running at least one red light, and he didn't stop until the sister started kicking the car's windshield, raising the alarm for witnesses. This isn't about the terrible men that Nikki encountered. According to Nikki's obituary, Nikki loved children and loved being the mother. She not only was devoted to her children, she dedicated six years of her life as a substitute teacher in the Green Bay area. She loved the outdoors and fitness, and she was always hiking, taking nature walks, or going to the zoo. Because her life was taken too early, she left behind her three children, her parents, a sister, and two brothers, plus so many friends. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening to this. If you want even more information about the cases we talk about, be sure to check out our website, OverMyDeadPod.com. And we'll see you next week with Holly's case. Bye-bye. Now it's overtime. Ladies, do you have any good stories or do you want me to go ahead and start off? Have you guys watched Unsolved Mysteries? I have binged the entire third season. I am missing one episode that I'm going to binge tonight. But other than that, I've watched them all. If you haven't watched them, Unsolved Mysteries is a three series, but it's not really series. They're individual. Every episode is an individual story, but it's Unsolved Mysteries. It's on Netflix. I will have to say, I think it's one of my favorite shows in general that every time they release, I binge because the stories are so good. There was a few individual stories this time that were super good. So the one I will quickly want to just touch on is they had an episode about UFO sightings, skinwalker sightings at a uh, Navajo land. And I just think they did a really good job about it. So I'm not going to do any spoilers or anything, but I think you guys need to go watch this one. I know you guys have already, but to our listeners, some good stuff. Now in Unsolved Mysteries posts it, then it's going to be good. I haven't watched a single episode where I thought, oh, that's a crappy story. I haven't watched one where I'm like, oh, that's a mystery because they are so convincing. There's so much evidence. Something to confess. Kylie, if you tell us you don't believe in UFOs. Kylie, don't. Kylie. I'll just just log off now, I guess. There is so much evidence. The universe is constantly expanding and you think it's a coincidence that all the life is like. I think it's just more likely that it's the more logical answer would be it's just the government and they have, you know, secret. I believe there are other lives out there in distant planets, and I believe they probably have technology better than ours, but I think it's just more likely than not in these specific areas. It's always like the same towns, and they're always seeing like the same things. Get what you're saying, Kylie, but I will say, go watch that episode tonight, because it even made me think weird stuff where I was like, oh, wait, this doesn't make, like, I think I made Cameron watch it. Because I was like, I need to talk to somebody about this. Kylie, so wouldn't it be much easier for the government to say, yeah, we're performing testing rather than to say, oh, yeah, it's aliens. Like, you guys have been right this entire time. Here's pages of documentation saying 
that we have conducted these or we have like recorded these crazy weird things we can't explain happening don't you think it'd be easier for them to say yeah we're conducting like military testing sorry i don't know you got to see it to believe it you know yeah but- yeah, yeah okay before we wrap this episode up all right one last question yes or no answer do you believe in the loch ness monster did I say something before I answer? Yeah, yes, I gotta say, I gotta okay. Let's. This. I have a. I have a follow up question for you, Kylie. Do you do we believe in the Loch Ness monster, or do we believe in monsters like the Loch Ness monster? The Loch Ness monster from the infamous photo, that one Loch Ness monster. I don't think it was a Loch Ness monster. I think it was a large sea creature. I think that monsters <laughs> like the Loch Ness monster do exist in the depth of oceans that we've never in our lives seen before. Do I believe that one in that tiny little pond or lake or whatever it was, was actually something much more? No, I don't. But I do believe that there are very large creatures in the sea that are monsters and yeah. we have no idea. Same answer as Kate. I think that we haven't explored like, what is it? I, I can't remember the percent, but it's like, we haven't explored most of the ocean. Like, it's like 90%. Say, yeah. It's yeah, like a ridiculous amount. I do believe in giant sea creatures. Thank you so much for your one word answer. But I have follow-up questions. This is why I need to be a defense lawyer, you guys. I'll never yeah. answer the question. I'll just ask yeah, Kylie, questions. Kelly, we went to law school. You know better than I ask one word questions. I'm over okay. here to win, okay? You beat me up, yeah. All right, you guys. So that finishes up our crime time for this week. Uh, we hope you guys appreciate this episode. And as always... Follow, like, and subscribe on our website, Apple Music, and Spotify, and we will see you guys next week. This is Kate Carter signing off. Tylee Colwell, goodbye. Holly Spear, bye-bye. Bye.